Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta and the volume editors of each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Okay, Dr. Raj here, and you know, this is going to be the last block of my high-yield summary of things that are going to be on your board exams, are being tested when you're, whether you're sitting in a classroom on taking a test or on the wards. And what do we cover already? Man, it, there were sepsis, there was ventilator management, there were talking about cardiomyopathies. I can't even remember all of them. And if you want to get the follow-up, check out all my previous podcasts, check out my website, which is going to be beyondthepearls.net. I'm excited. So let's kind of end this update summary. You know what? They always bring me back to mention something about sleep. And this was actually on the board exam. So I'm glad we're talking about it. So this is going to be a 56-year-old woman is evaluated for a six-month history of nocturnal leg movements. So six months, she's moving her legs at night. This is all according to her husband. She frequently kicks her legs during sleep, but does not exhibit any vocalization or complex movements while asleep. The patient is unaware of these movements, so she didn't know what was going on. It was the husband that tattled on her, all right, and has not had any sensory discomfort or urge to move the legs. So they're kind of telling you it's not really what, like restless leg syndrome. She snores at night, but has had no sudden loss of muscle tone or sleep attack. So when you say sudden loss of muscle tone, there's one word that comes to mind, especially for my people who love, you know, sleep medicine, it's got to be cataplexy, that there's no cataplexy. And if there's no cataplexy, they're really trying to tell you in so many words, it's probably not what sleep disorder, narcolepsy. And of course, what are sleep attacks is when like you're listening to a lecture, not my lecture, but what do you do? You start dozing off, you know, and of course, there's no excessive daytime sleepiness. And excessive daytime sleepiness is one of the hallmarks, if you even want to call it something like narcolepsy. So they do a physical exam. They're all normal. They did some labs. They're unremarkable. Um, They do a polysomography. So they met her go to a sleep lab, and she had good sleep efficiency. She wasn't doing a lot of awakenings. Her apnea hypopnea index was low, which means she doesn't have obstructive sleep apnea. But this is kind of a weird phrase for those who don't know super too much about sleep medicine, there was an absence of motor activity during REM sleep. So is that normal or abnormal? That's the big question. So during REM sleep, she wasn't moving. That is pretty normal. Why is because during REM sleep, you know, it's a protective mechanism. So we don't want reenact our vivid dreams. You know what I mean? So yes, you should have no motor activity during REM sleep. So that's good. There's no uh, sleep fragmentation is evident. Uh, despite she was having some leg movements, a video recording of her movements revealed slow flexion movements of the ankles, knees, and hips. And it seems to repeat itself around every 20 seconds in kind of a stereotype manner. So the following is the most appropriate next step in management is it going to be A, give the patient clonazepam, which is the benzodiazepine? Should we just like, you know, doesn't really have a sleeping problem, but should we knock them out? And more than that, does anyone know what sleep disorder we use clonazepam for? 
We do use it for a lot of parasomnias, but specifically something called REM movement disorder. And REM movement disorder usually happens in elderly, usually happens in males. These are individuals who have post-traumatic stress syndrome. They reenact their dreams. And usually during REM sleep where you have those vivid dreams, you should be one paralyzed, but these individuals are not paralyzed in REM. So is this going to be REM movement disorder? Not really. I mean, uh, I said that during this sleep study, there was this, you know, absence of motor activity, which is normal. So I didn't really feel that. And she really wasn't having dream reenactment anyways. Should we worry about seizures? Does this sound like a seizure activity? It's at nighttime. It's just a leg. It's repetitive every 20 seconds. No, it doesn't really sound like we're having changes in the EEG, which occurs when you do a polysomography. I don't think we need an EEG here. C, a ferritin level. Uh, what sleep disorder, and you know what? It's not even a sleep disorder. What disorder do we think about when we're talking about ferritin levels? Restless leg syndrome. And why did I correct myself? Is that restless legs prevents you from going to sleep. It doesn't happen while you're sleeping itself. And does this patient have any symptoms indicative of restless legs? I mean, they're telling you she doesn't feel like she needs to move her legs. There's no discomfort. So I don't think we need to check a ferritin level here. Should we start the patient on, I guess, brand name Lyrica pregabalin? Now, do we use pregabalin in any disorders that deal with uh, legs? The answer is, yeah, I mean, it did get FDA approval for restless leg syndrome. Uh, but is this restless legs? No. So, you know, just by default, I'm kind of bullied into picking what? I would do nothing in this patient, but who could tell me what the diagnosis is? And that's why this is going to be a great question for the board exams. This one's called periodic limb movements of sleep. So this is not the disorder. This is going to be periodic limb movements of sleep. This is characterized by periodic leg kicks that often have this stereotype flexion, and it repeats periodically during sleep. You know, this was first described in the 1950s. In the olden days, we used to call this nocturnal myoclonus. And you know what? If there is no sleep disorder present with this, meaning that there's no sleep apnea, she's not tired and sleepy during the day, it's not causing her to have many awakenings at night, then it's all about reassurance. But please, you know, terminology-wise, this is not periodic limb movement disorder, which can, can cause you symptoms during the day. So one more question, you know, then we'll kind of finish off sleep. And I want to move on to something else. Which of the following statements regarding periodic leg movement uh, of sleep is correct? So is it A, patients who have periodic leg movements of sleep generally present with complaints of repetitive leg movements during sleep? Not really, because it happens during what? Sleep. They don't even know what's occurring. How do they usually find out? Back to this vignette. Who is it? always the husband, just kind of telling on their poor, hardworking wife. Someone mentions it. So the patient doesn't really mention it themselves. Does a periodic limb movement index greater than 15? Should that always be treated? You know, once again, test taking skills, that word always is always suspect. And the answer is that if it really is just periodic limb movements of sleep, just the sleep itself, no, they're asymptomatic. Now, if it was causing something like the disorder, with daytime symptoms, sure, this could be a, a different answer. But for right now, no, I'm not going to pick B. Let's go down to E. These periodic limb movements of sleep commonly respond to an alpha-2 delta ligand. And you're just telling me, Dr. Raj, what 
the heck is an alpha-2 delta ligand? Well, those are the categories of drugs that gabapentin belongs to, pregabalin responds to. So Neurontin and Lyrica using the brand names, and they were FDA approved for things like restless leg syndrome. So no, they don't really are used for periodic movements of sleep. How about D? They commonly respond to dopamine agonists. Well, once again, dopamine agonists are one of the drugs we could use for what? Restless leg syndrome, which this patient does not have. So just to having these periodic movements of sleep, I, I, I really wouldn't use those. Or C, prevalence of periodic limb movements uh, is increased in people who have a disorder such as a REM movement disorder. Now, even if you didn't memorize that fact, you know, if you have REM movement disorders, you're going to have a lot of more movements because you don't have that paralysis in REM. So it kind of conceptually makes sense to me, especially comparing the other choices. The answer is going to be what? C. So when we talk about periodic limb movements of sleep, they usually affect people who are older in age, usually uh, greater than 60. It can be associated with restless leg syndrome. Now, once again, restless leg syndrome is a clinical, clinical, clinical diagnosis. You don't need to have a in-lab sleep study, a polysomography to make the diagnosis. But of course, if you get one and you see a lot of periodic limb movements, you may ask them about restless leg syndrome by doing a clinical and physical examination. It also can be associated with REM movement disorder. We mentioned that narcolepsy and obstructive sleep apnea because of all the awakenings and arousals throughout the night. But periodic limb movements of sleep can occasionally cause arousals, but the movements itself, uh, the patient is unaware of them. So once again, periodic limb movements of sleep do not have a consistent relationship with symptoms. So they usually don't cause insomnia or excessive daytime sleepiness. And most of the time, they're considered to be an age-related phenomenon or maybe some kind of response to an arousal or something. But there are going to be individuals who do complain of excessive daytime sleepiness. And in that case, when they have symptoms or if they cause things like insomnia, we call it periodic movement disorder. So when we talk about how do we make the diagnosis, whether it be periodic limb movement or periodic limb movement disorder, you definitely need the polysomography, that in-lab sleep study. We look at for something called the arousal index. How many times are you waking up and what's causing it? So the way I think about it is that if someone comes in for a sleep study, mainly because I'm always trying to rule out obstructive sleep apnea, if their apnea hypopnea index or their respiratory disturbance index is normal or low and their arousal index is very high, then I got to look for what is arousing them if it's not going to be the sleep apnea. And that's where these periodic limb movements may take place. And what are going to be some abnormal values? If you have a periodic limb movement index greater than five in children, you may want to do some further investigation. If it's greater than 15 adults, you may want to do some further investigation. And this is an example of a polysomography. And if you look at right here where it says left leg, you can see these little dashes. These are going to be these limb movements. And when I am teaching my sleep medicine fellows, there is going to be very specific criteria of how I diagnose a periodic limb movement. I just put it down here that says each of these limb movements got to last around 0.5 to 5 seconds in duration. They're separated by an interval of 5 to 90 seconds. And a series of these are going to be four or more of these limb movements that are going to be consecutive. Now, when I memorize this for a board exam, Probably not, unless you're taking a sleep medicine board, 
but I just wanted to show you what it looks like if I were to do a nighttime sleep study known as a polysomography. So how do we treat the limb movement disorder? Very similar to restless leg syndrome, even though periodic limb movement disorder is not well studied and there are no drugs FDA approved just for periodic limb movement disorder. So specific therapy is not indicated if it's periodic limb movement of sleep. And with that being said, let's go through our last topic together. And I got to tell you, I'm already going to, I'm feeling good. We're going to end big here. So this is a 42-year-old man is admitted to the hospital with an acute change in mental status and fevers for two days duration. Medical history is non-contributory and he takes no meds. On exam, patient has low-grade fevers, blood pressure on the lower side at 108 over 70, heart rate of 104, respiratory rate of 18, O2 set is 96% on room air. He is agitated and disoriented to place and time. There are petechiae, uh-oh, are noted on his shins. And the remainder of the exam is normal. Labs. They get a haptoglobin, which came back at 20, which is kind of on the uh, normal to low side. Hemoglobin is 10. Leukocyte count is 9,800. Platelets, oh boy, it's, it's, it's 44. Patient thrombocytopenic. Retic count is 6.8%. The creatinine is 1.4. And the LDH is elevated at uh, 1,600. They do a direct Coombs test, a direct anti-globulin Coombs test, which is negative. Therapy should be immediately initiated pending the results of which of the following. Number one, which is A, should it be an ADAMS-13, B, coagulation studies, C, peripheral blood smear, D, stool culture and testing for shigatoxin, E, stool culture for campylobacter. So what is the diagnosis here? So when you got an individual who has some fevers, who has probably the most important thing, which is thrombocytopenia, the hemoglobin's low, all these things put together, signs of hemolysis, like a high LDH level. Well, what is going to be something on my differential? And it, they also mentioned that, uh, you know, his, his mental status, he's disoriented. Yeah, it screams what? TTP. And what's going to be something you could order right away, get the results to initiate therapy because starting therapy is important. You got it. Get that peripheral blood smear. The answer is going to be what? C. And what are we looking for on that peripheral blood smear? Oh, look at this. Schistocytes. So you know what? In a couple of slides, I'm going to give a huge talk about how do we work this up. But yes, the answer is TTP. And it belongs to a category of disorders known as MAHA, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. And we're going to talk about that shortly. But my second bullet point is prompt diagnosis is critical because TTP is fatal in 90% of patients if you don't start therapy right away. And you're going to ask me, well, what is that therapy? You got it. You got to do this plasma exchange. Maybe you guys call that what? Plex. 18-year-old man is evaluated in the emergency department for abdominal cramping and bloody diarrhea for six days. Young person, bloody diarrhea. Medical history is unremarkable, and he takes no meds. On exam, norm, uh, afebrile, blood pressure is low at 98 over 60, heart rate is 100, respiratory rate is 16, O2 has 98% on room air, and the abdomen is tender without guarding or organomegaly. The exam is otherwise unremarkable. Labs. Oh boy, this haptoglobin is undetectable. It's low. Hemoglobin is low at six. 
leukocyte count is 6,800. Platelets are low. Thrombocytopenic at 37. Reticulocyte count is 9.8. Creatinine is elevated in this case at 3.6. And they do a urine analysis. There's blood in the urine. There's proteins in the urine. There's not really any RBCs going on here. So what's going on? And there's no leukocytes. And there's some granular casts in there. They do a peripheral blood smear as you should. And uh uh-oh, they should do what? Schistocytes. They don't see any platelets or scant platelets without clumping. They do a direct Coombs test. And once again, it's negative. What is the most likely diagnosis? So is this going to be some kind of autoimmune, uh, immune hemolytic anemia, which is choice C with thrombocytopenia? Probably not because why? That Coombs test, it's what? It's negative. Is this going to be a rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis and RPGN? Well, is that going to answer for the haptoglobin? Is that going to answer for the schistocytes that they see? Is that going to cause the platelets to be low? That's choice D. The answer is no. Is this going to be DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation? I mean, I don't see how that's going to cause some of the findings here that uh, when we're talking about the creatinine going high at 3.6, you can't really answer that. So it's not going to be E. So it really comes down to, is this going to be a typical hemolytic uremic syndrome, HUS, that's choice B, or choice A, which is going to be atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. And what really separates those is the classic history. What's that classic history? An individual who gets what? Diarrhea. Probably from what? E. coli. From what? The shigatoxin. So based upon this, I'm going to go with what? B. And this is the classic thing we talk about. When we want to evaluate it, I have this wonderful flow chart here on the right for those who are going to go to beyondthepearls.net, my website. It's all going to be on there. You know, we worry about people who get E. coli. The classic one is the uh, the 0157H7. So you're ingested by this. And maybe three or four days later, you get what? Abdominal cramping. That's why I always cook your hamburgers. You get some non-bloody diarrhea. Then one or two days later, you get bloody diarrhea. And most of the time, you get your self-resolution around 95% of the time. But sometimes, uh uh-oh, you can get HUS, hemolytic uremic syndrome. And when we talk about hemolytic uremic syndrome, though we always kind of clump that together with TTP, people with HUS, the U for uremia, these individuals go into renal failure. Why? It's because, you know, that sugar toxin that's associated with that E. coli strain, you know, not only does it trigger thrombosis resulting in this thrombotic microangiopathic problems, but it also binds to the renal uh, mesangial cells and podocytes and renal tubular cells, causing direct damage to the kidney itself, causing that acute kidney injury. You know, when we talk about the typical HUS, uh, care is usually supportive. And of course, there's something called atypical HUS. And we're going to talk about that in one second, but it's always good to you know repeat myself and This one is mainly due to overwhelming complement activation. We're activating the complement. And it's usually not preceded by a diarrhea illness. And why is this so important? There is actually a very, very, very expensive antibody, monoclonal antibody, that got FDA approval for atypical HUS. We call that eculizumab. So with that being said, why did I bring this up here for these next couple of slides? High yield for the board exam is talking about hematology. How do you approach a patient who has low platelets? So 
One of my favorite questions is, what is the best first initial test to evaluate thrombocytopenia? The answer is peripheral smear. You want to look at the peripheral smear. So that's what I have here on the bottom is a peripheral smear. And you know what I don't see here? I don't see any what? Platelets. So you always want to confirm the diagnosis by looking at the peripheral smear. What did I put above here? I mean, I can't resist. USMLE step one, basic science, that where do you get platelets from? It starts off with a hemopoietic stem cell that turns to a pro-megakaryocyte, that turns to, to a megakaryocyte, and it's pieces of these megakaryocytes that break off to form what? Platelets. And then when someone has thrombocytopenia, review the medications. You know, there's so many medications out there, whether it's going to be vancomycin, whether it's going to be, you know, things like linezolid, whether it's going to be things like proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers. So there's so many things you want to look at the medication list. Of course, look at recreational drug use, alcohol exposures, look for dietary restrictions. People may be B12 deficient. That's going to be very important. And of course, you look for people with other disorders can be associated with thrombocytopenia, HIV, hep C, people with just cirrhosis from the, uh, you know, hyperspleenism, or even in some cases, thyroid disorders. So now that you know the patient is truly thrombocytopenic, how do you categorize your thought process? Well, do they have low platelets because there's decreased production at the bone marrow level? Or is there increased destruction that can occur? So for decreased production, think about bone marrow infiltration, like myelofibrosis, metastatic tumors, granulomas diseases, infiltrating the bone marrow, nutritional deficiencies like B12 and folate, or just abnormalities in stem cell maturation, like myelodysplastic syndrome or aplastic anemias. And of course, other cytopenias can be associated with having low platelets. If there's going to be an increased destruction of platelets, it's going to be one of two things. Is it immune mediated, meaning there's antibodies or it's non-immune mediated? And if it's going to be immune mediated, what are the two antibody diseases? It's going to be ITP, which is immune thrombocytopedic purpura. There's antibodies killing the platelets, or it's going to be things like HIT, heparin induced thrombocytopenia. If it's non-immune mediated, what are those things? Hey, you have hyperspleenism or splenomegaly. You have DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. Or this is why we're here today to talk about what? MAHA, microangiopathic hemolytic anemias. And you know the two MAHAs on the boards are TTP and HUS. And what did we just finish talking about? <laughs> you got it, TTP and HUS. So this is my favorite slide I created just for you. So anytime we talk about what are diseases that confuse one another for the board exams, it's got to be across the top. Is it ITP, immune-mediated thrombocytopenia? Is it going to be a TTP that we see up there? Is it going to be hemolytic uremic syndrome? Or is it going to be DIC, which is going to be disseminated intravascular coagulation? And what I want to go over today is how do you work them up? We'll talk about the pathogenesis. What are going to be the platelets, hemoglobin? What do you see on peripheral smear? What's the creatinine going to be? D-dimer, the PT-PTT INR, the fibrinogen level. And of course, I'll say a little blurb about treatment. So when we think about immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, well, why does that happen? Remember, you get autoantibodies, antibodies against those platelets. And these antibodies can be triggered by what? 
many medications. That's why you always need to look at the med list. And ITP can be associated with diseases like CLL or lupus or HIV or hep C. Or a classic for the board exams are people with H. pylori infection have been associated with ITP. If we talk about TTP, the first thing I'm going to say is, you know what? It's rare. It's not a common thing clinically. So you really want to make sure you make the right diagnosis. So what causes TTP? Well, it really is a deficiency of a protein called the Adams TS13. And when you have a deficiency of this, that leaves high levels of what's called von Willebrand's factor. And what does von Willebrand's factor do? It causes clumping of all these platelets. So if you're clumping these platelets, you're going to develop what? These microthrombi. So you get what? These thrombi that are formed, but the platelets are going to be what? Low. And that's why you're thrombocytopenic. So how do you, um, you get TTP? Well, two ways. Number one could be genetic. Number two could be acquired. It can be acquired later in life. So how do we make this diagnosis if we suspect it? is you definitely want to check the Adams TS-13 level and activity. So the first you want to do, see how active is it going to be? And if you have low activity, you definitely want to check that level. Then also you could check the gene itself if you want to think about Adams TS-13. Then when we talk about HUS, hemolytic uremic syndrome, what is the key thing? It's a younger patient. Think about a younger age group. And the first bullet point is, the classic history of acute diarrhea. Think about E. coli, that O157H7, or having that sugar toxin. Now, I wanted to mention there is that atypical HUS. Think about someone who's also young, but no diarrhea. But the pathophysiology is different. This one's going to be complement-driven. It's going to be complement-driven. And the last thing is very common called DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. And this one, the clotting factors, they're deplete. And, you know, when we talk about all these uh, clotting factors over here, it's going to be deplete. And you're going to have platelets that are going to be what? On the lower side. And when we talk about DIC, that it could be acute, it could be chronic, but this is going to be when we talk about the, the, the coagulopathy involved in here. So how do I approach a board exams? Let's quickly go over some of these criteria. If someone has, we talk about the platelets, what will the platelets be in ITP? extremely very super low. If you have TTP, don't get me wrong, it's going to be low. It's part of thrombocytopenia. If you have HUS, of course, it's going to be low. No questions asked and same with DIC. So low platelets is not going to be a deal breaker. If we talk about the hemoglobin and the hematocrit, if you have ITP, I mean, the hemoglobin has to be normal because ITP is just a platelet problem. If we talk about TTP, HUS, and DIC, there's going to be what? hemolysis. And therefore, the uh, hemoglobin has to be what? Low. So if we talk of the peripheral smear, which is probably one of my favorite tests to order, if we're talking about ITP, of course, peripheral smear, best first initial test. Why? To confirm they're truly thrombocytopenic. And if we do peripheral smears in both TTP, HUS, and DIC, what are you going to see? Schistocytes. And that's why the answer on my question today for TTP was what? Get the peripheral smear. Look for those schistocytes. Start the therapy immediately. When we talk about serum creatinine, which is a marker of kidney function, it shouldn't be surprised that in ITP, it's going to be normal. It has nothing to do with the kidney. In TTP, 
it's mainly going to be normal, but it could be a little high because, you know, when we think that classic pentad for TTP, they do mention renal failure, but rarely do I see a lot of renal failure with TTP. But if we talk about HUS, oh boy, the U for uremia, they really have renal failure in these patients. So think of a very high creatinine. And for DIC, for pure DIC, it has nothing to do with the kidney. It's going to be what? Normal. Now we're talking about the coagulopathies. So if you check a D-dimer, I mean, it's going to be normal in ITP, normal in TTP, normal in HUS. But you know what? In DIC, there's a depletion of the clotting factors. So it's going to be what? High. And if you think about PTT, PT and INR, ITP, TTP, and HUS, it's all going to be normal. When is it going to be high? When we talk about DIC, fibrinogen, once again, ITP, TTP, and HUS, it's got to be normal. But what's going to be if you have DIC? Fibrinogen levels is definitely going to be low. And the last thing is just mentioning treatment. So if someone comes in and they have ITP, first-line therapy in most cases is going to be steroids. Then you want to give things like IBIG. Second-line therapy would probably be the medication known as rituximab, which works on those B cells. And B cells make what? Antibodies. If it's TTP, it's very important right away to start what? Plasma exchange. And you know what's a very common question people ask me is, hey, Dr. Raj, is plasma exchange and plasma phoresis, is that the exact same thing? And I'm like, yeah, but not really. So the main difference is going to be the volume. So when you talk about plasma exchange, that's going to be just literally what it means, exchanging the entire volume, you know? But when we do a phoresis, it's going to be smaller volume. And we know that TTP can be very, very fatal. So definitely we want to do a plasma exchange. You know, some individuals may give a little FFP, you know, while we're waiting for the phoresis machine to come, that's not wrong, but the treatment is a plasma exchange. And if they're going to be refractory, you may think about steroids, you may think about rituximab, and then there's a medication that's super expensive for refractory TTP called caplacizumab. I hope I said that right, which is one of those drugs very niche towards refractory TTP. If you have HUS, you know, classic HUS, it's very supportive. But if you have atypical HUS, well, remember the problem here is with complement. And there is a very expensive drug called Iculizumab, which is FDA approved for that atypical HUS. And last but not least, if you have DIC, the answer is in most cases, just treat the underlying cause. So if you could put this together, I hope I gave all the answers to how to evaluate someone who comes in with thrombocytopenia, focusing on the MAHA, the microangiopathic hemolytic anemias. That's all I have. And I hope you enjoyed this. So no matter where you're watching this on my website, my podcast, hey, be sure to follow me on Instagram, check out my books, check out my website, and I will hope to see you one day live and in person. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.